Welcome to History of the World Part 2, a podcast dedicated to teaching world history. Welcome back to History of the World Part 2 and our continued discussion of this first unit that we're learning about in class, the Renaissance. And this week, we're going to be continuing to talk about the Renaissance. We're going to be adding in an extra dimension. Now, if you've been listening to these podcasts every week, you know that we're in the 1500s and there's a lot going on. We've talked about how the Renaissance literally means rebirth, and it's a rebirth of humanism. It's a rebirth of humanity following the destruction of Rome and into the Dark Ages. All of a sudden, in the 1500s, we have this, at least in Western society, this massive light flips back on, essentially, and society starts to grow again. And so, last week in class, we talked about Galileo and his new discoveries that the Earth is the center, the sun rather, is the center of the solar system, and the earth goes around it. And we've also talked about how the key governing body of this time period is the Catholic Church, right? They were the only church really in existence at the time that was Christian. Um, Yes, there were kings, and yes, there were various countries, but really the Catholic Church was the, the, the owner of all of the power, really. And so we're going to continue that theme today and this week. I'm going to talk about another thing that happens during this time period that's really kind of a revolution, really kind of a massive change in society. And we call this topic the Protestant Reformation. And essentially what happens is there are some cracks that start to appear and the Catholic Church's foundation, and in their power base. During the Renaissance, people start thinking again. You have people start reading again. And people start questioning the Church's power. People start saying, well, why are you saying the things you're saying? People start looking at what happened to Galileo. And they start saying, well, Galileo was right. Why was he punished this way? And so I want to first start off today with this information section of the podcast by talking about some of the background around what we're going to be reading this week, because this week we're going to read some documents by a guy named Martin Luther, and not Martin Luther King. He's going to be obviously in American history in the 60s and 50s, right? This is a different Martin Luther, a different Martin Luther who is alive during this time period, and he writes a very important book in the 1500s. And it changes a lot of things. So let's jump in first to just some basic background about all this. The Renaissance is happening by this point. And the Renaissance is spreading to all over the Western world. These ideas that we should ask questions, these ideas that humanity matters, 
and not just the church's power, but humanity matters. And it wouldn't be long for people to apply that idea to church. And they apply it specifically towards the Catholic Church, because as we've said, the only Christian church in the world up to this point was Catholic. If you were a Christian in the 1500s and before, you were Catholic because that was it. Now, the Catholic Church during this time was going through some abuses. They were going through some struggles. The church had immense power. And unlike today, they were very involved in political and worldly affairs. They had their own army. And so they were involved. There's literal wars that happen between the Catholic Church and kings and queens. They're going through and changing power structures in various places. You'll see an example of this, actually, at the second half of this podcast. And just like any super powerful organization, whether it's a king or a country, the Catholic Church has a supreme leader, still to this day, called the Pope. But during this time, the Pope was probably the most powerful person in the world. I would say today that's different. But during this time, the Pope was the most powerful person in the world. Kings had to answer to the Pope. The Pope lived very lavishly, meaning he had lots of money. He could get whatever he wanted. He could buy the nicest clothes, afford the nicest food, um, be adorned in the most beautiful jewels. A lot of times the Pope would commission various artworks to be done, some of which we still have today. Thinking about Renaissance art, thinking about um, those major beautiful masterpieces that exist in places like the Sistine Chapel. And they would also do all this while building these extravagant buildings. This is a podcast, obviously, so you can't go and listen or you can't go and see pictures of this. In the podcast, you can do that on your own, obviously, but they would build these buildings, these massive, beautiful Renaissance churches that are huge and have all these complicated uh, sculptures and things on them. So the question then becomes, how could a church pay for all these things? How could a church get enough money to commission these massive artworks, have their, their, their leader, the Pope, live lavishly and build these beautiful buildings? Well, today... They would do that through donations and things like that. But during this time, there was a way that they did that that was a little more sinister. And one of the things the church would do was they had this system called indulgences. And it's kind of a key word for this whole conversation. They had this system called indulgences. And essentially what it was, was in various cities and various towns, around the world, the Western world especially, um, people that were Christian would go to the church, would go to priests to have their sins cleansed, right? And in modern day Catholicism, you would go to confession, you would be given a penance, they may be saying 10 Hail Mary, something like that, and then your sins would be cleansed. But during this time in the indulgence system, the priest would say, okay, you want to have your sins cleansed? All right, we can do that for you. To do it, you're going to have to pay me. You're going to have to give me some money. And then I can cleanse your sins for you. And that process, you would get a piece of paper. That was your indulgence. You would get a piece of paper 
that said, your sins have been cleansed. Thank you for paying. But they would also put fees on other things, right? In the Catholic Church, one of your things that you're supposed to do in your life is you're supposed to get married by a priest. But again, they would add these indulgences in. They would say, you have to pay money to get married. And once you pay your money here, then we'll go ahead and get you married and get you what you need, right? You would have to pay money to get baptized. You would, Instead of saying, hey, I had a child, we'd like to get this child baptized, like they do in the Christian faith, they would say, okay, we'll baptize your child if you pay us some money. And here's the one that's especially kind of ugh, sinister. Um, in the Catholic Church, you're also supposed to have your last rites read to you, meaning when you're on your deathbed, when you're dying, uh, a priest comes and talks to you, gives you some special prayers, and prepares you for your journey to the afterlife, right? Still happens today. Now it's called uh, the rite of sickness, but back then it was supposed to be done specifically before you died. Um, and they were charging for that. Sure, we'll come give grandpa and grandma their, their, their last rites, but first, you got to pay us. They even went so far as to say that we can forgive your other family members who have died maybe two, three hundred years ago, your ancestors. We can forgive their sins, too, through these indulgences, through paying us this money. And there was other things happening in the Catholic Church, other abuses that the people in specifically Western society were complaining about. But this is the one that kind of starts to light a fire. And this fire is going to spread and grow into our topic today. So, with that said, along comes, in 1517, a Catholic monk. He's a monk. He's a person who, who is a priest, works through the Catholic Church. And in 1517, this monk, his name is Martin Luther. He's the big, the big guy for this conversation. He's a German. He's also a professor, right? A lot of times priests and monks during this time would also be the professors because the learning would happen through the church, obviously. And in 1517, this monk, Martin Luther, here's a famous speech um, by, by a guy named Johann Tetzel. He's kind of a priest who gets forgotten by history, but, but Martin Luther goes to hear him speak in 1517 in some German town somewhere. And the summary of Tetzel's speech is that he's saying to the people in the town square, if you can imagine the setting, right? He's standing up on a pulpit telling the people, mostly uneducated, mostly working class, saying, if you'll buy indulgences from me to help us rebuild this church we want to build somewhere, then I promise I'll get you into heaven automatically. And if you give me enough money, I'll even get your dead relatives into your ancestors. So if you know anything about the Christian faith or the Catholic uh, system, right, you're supposed to, the idea being you're supposed to be a good person and, and treat others fairly, leave, lead a life like, this, like the Savior Jesus Christ according to the Christian tradition, and that's supposed to get you there. But Martin Luther is sitting there in a German town hearing another priest, another monk of some, time, some type, Johann Tetzel, saying that if you give me money, then I'll make sure you get into heaven. And 
some of the poor people, obviously, some of the uneducated people in the town, oh, that sounds like a good deal. If I give you enough money, me and my ancestors will get into heaven. Maybe I'll think about doing it. But Martin Luther is outraged because he's educated. He's a monk. He knows what the Bible tells him to do, right? And he says, this is not how this is supposed to work. None of this is supposed to work this way. And he'd been harboring some of these ideas for a while, but to him, this is the moment that historians say, this is when Martin Luther is officially, officially outraged by what's happening in the Catholic Church. So what happens is he goes home, probably to his, his abbey somewhere. He's a monk, so he lives in a church. Uh, he goes home and he sits in his, his room. We can imagine it's a stone room. Probably he's doing this by candlelight. He's probably not letting the other monks see him do this. And he writes. And he writes a list. I called it a book earlier. It's a big, long list. And the name of this list he writes, he calls the 95 Theses. And that's going to be kind of another key word. Martin Luther gets outraged. And he writes this list called the 95 Theses. And what it was, was essentially 95 things that Martin Luther was upset about 95 things that he thought the Catholic Church was doing incorrectly. Now, this sounds like just somebody's journal entry, right? You can sit down and write down in your journal all the things you're mad about and put it away and no one ever sees it. But Martin Luther instead goes out late at night. Again, this is before street lights. And so we can imagine he has maybe his monk's hood up and he's just kind of walking, trying not to draw too much attention to himself. He goes to the church doors. I'd imagine this is a Saturday night, maybe Sunday morning. People are going to be coming in and seeing this, uh, this thing he's going to do. And he's going to nail his 95 theses to the church doors. So everybody coming in is going to see the 95 things that he thinks is wrong with the Catholic Church. And some of the things he mentions, I'm not going to read all 95 of them, but some of the things he mentions. He says, indulgences have nothing to do with the Bible. There's nowhere in the Bible that it talks about indulgences and having to pay money to get your sins forgiven. Now, we should keep in mind here, as I get into these, most people during this time can't read. So most people aren't able to go into the Bible and see these, this information, especially because back then the Bible would have been written in Latin, and you had to be a monk to learn how to read Latin. And so he starts to tell the everyday people some of the problems here. He says, indulgences have nothing to do with the Bible. He says, the Pope, the key man in charge of the Catholic Church, doesn't have the right to release souls to heaven or hell. He doesn't actually do that. And then he also says, a Christian could be saved from faith only. He says, a Christian doesn't have to go all, through all these steps of paying money or these rights. He says, if you believe... That's all that matters. And he nails this to the door. And we can imagine the next morning what's going to happen. Um, people are going to come to church. Maybe some of the educated people in the community are going to stand up and read this and start speaking to the crowd. A lot of times that would that's what would happen in society before everyone could read like we can now, right? Is one person who could read would read it out loud for everybody, and then it would spread, and then people would go home and say, "You know what I heard today?" And then those people would go to work the next day, and say, "You know what I read?" And those people would go out to dinner, or they'd go out um, to to their friend groups and say, "You know what I heard?" And this starts a firestorm. These ninety five theses literally kind of explode across the Western world. 
overnight almost, copies of these theses. Someone takes it down, copies all this, and spreads them all over uh, the European world especially. Now, Martin Luther did work for the Catholic Church. He was a monk. Technically, his boss, his ultimate boss, was the Pope. Underneath God, obviously, since he's a monk. And the Catholic Church obviously is outraged. The Pope is obviously beside himself. Some might say he was apoplectic when he found out. That's a fancy word for so mad you, your head wants to explode. And the church comes to Martin Luther and they say, hey man, you're kind of becoming a celebrity so we can't actually do anything to you because everyone will be mad at us. But we want you to go out and, and, and tell the people that you were wrong. This isn't true. None of this, none of this is true. But by this point, Martin Luther we can imagine this is a couple months later, has become a bit of a celebrity and he believes his own stuff. And he asks, and he refuses. He doesn't do it. So the Catholic Church makes a decision. And they say, fine, you won't take it back? We're going to excommunicate you. Just like last week, if you were listening to the podcast last week and you did the work last week, Galileo was also excommunicated, meaning officially kicked out of the church. Meaning officially, well, you can't get into heaven through the Catholic Church. We're going to kick you out. You're not allowed back into any of our buildings. You are no longer a monk. And on top of that, since the Catholic Church was also the, the main law bringer to the world, they say you're also an outlaw in Rome. You are an actual criminal in Rome. And if we find you in Rome, you're going to go to jail. And we'll get you for trespassing or whatever they're going to get them for. Rome is also the head of the Catholic Church, if you want to know. That's their main city. But here's the problem, and this is a famous thing you hear talked about in, in modern history, is you can kill a revolutionary, but you can't kill a revolution. You can't stop an idea. You can stop Martin Luther. Martin Luther's just a man. But once an idea starts to spread, it's very difficult to stop an idea. You can't kill an idea. And by this point, this idea has spread all over the Western world, that maybe the Catholic Church doesn't have this thing right. Now, we should also mention, this is also about the time that the Gutenberg printing press was created. Meaning that not only are these ideas spreading everywhere, literal pamphlets with the 95 theses are spreading everywhere. And the fascinating thing is, too, if you go look online, uh, you can Google this stuff. We actually have copies of the Gutenberg printing, or the uh, 95 theses printed by the Gutenberg printing press still around because they were printed and sold everywhere. But this starts a firestorm, and this firestorm spreads everywhere. And so with this, we have the very first split in all of human history of the Christian church. You know how I've been saying that anybody up to this point who is a Christian is also a Catholic? Catholicism is a version of Christianity. But suddenly, a new form of Christianity takes place. People at first call this new type of Christianity Lutheranism. And over time, it spreads, and the name starts to change as Martin Luther is kind of pushed to the background, and it becomes the second split, or the first split, in the, cat, in the Christian faith, Protestantism. 
And literally, this word, what it means, if you called yourself a Protestant, it meant that you protested, you were protesting the Catholic Church. Now, from there, from this first idea that we can actually make our own Christian church that doesn't have to follow the rules of Catholicism, we can be separate from the Pope and have our own version, it starts into a wildfire of various communities and various societies starting to make their own versions of Christianity. You end up with um, Calvinism in Switzerland. You're going to end up with uh, the Church of England eventually, Anglicanism. And down the road, 300 years later, 200 years later, you're going to end up with various versions of, of baptism and all these different types of Christianity where if you drive around the town you live in, I'm sure you can find a Catholic church. I'm sure you can find a Protestant church, uh, an Anglican church, a Baptist church, a Calvinist church. You can find all these different churches because this one man, Martin Luther, writes these 95 theses complaining about the abuses of the Catholic church. Now, that's some background that can help you understand the documents. Let's go ahead and take some time to talk about the documents we're going to get to. And then on the back half of this podcast, I have a, a cool little story we'll get into about how this Protestantism, this break from the Catholic Church, affects one country in particular. Um, so the key question we're going to be working on this week, now that we have this background, we're going to read some documents about this break from the Catholic Church. And the question we're going to be answering by the end of the week is why did Martin Luther really decide to break away from the church? What was going in his, on in his head when he decided, I'm going to split from the Catholic Church and write these 95 theses? What was this man who changes a lot of history with this one document, what was he really thinking? And so the two documents we're going to be reading, we're going to read one from... Martin Luther himself, when he writes a letter to an archbishop, this is in 1517. This is right as he's writing the 95 Theses, right as the firestorm is beginning. And he's going to write this letter to a friend of his, an archbishop, meaning another Catholic priest. And the name of this is the Introduction to the 95 Theses. And he's going to talk about um, why he did what he did. He's going to talk about his feelings kind of in a more relaxed mood. This is a personal letter written to a friend. This is why I did what I did. That's the first document. The second document we're going to be reading is another one from Martin Luther called his Table Talk. And these are things that were written down by various followers of Martin Luther as he spoke. This isn't written by his own hand. This is written secondhand by somebody who listened to him speak. And these are going to come from the 1530s, about 15 years, give or take, after Lutheranism has happened, after Protestantism has split from the Catholic Church, and after uh, Luther's kind of become a celebrity. And so by this point, Martin Luther is a slightly older man, He's probably in less danger. He's probably more sure of himself and the decision that he made. So this is a second opinion by, by Martin Luther, again, talking about why he did what he did. 
And this week's actually easier. We only have two documents this week we're going to go through, but we're going to go through them in some more detail. And just like regular, we're going to be reading the sources. We're going to look at the sources, and we're going to do the close reading. We're going to look at the context and the corroboration between these sources. But we're going to use these two points in Martin Luther's life to, again, answer the question of why did Martin Luther really decide to break away from the Catholic Church? So with that background, with that detail, with the information we just gained about the generalities of this event, we're going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about one specific event in history that I think you'll find extremely fascinating, uh, very, um, very drama-filled, called the, the Kingship of Henry VIII or what we're gonna call it, King Henry Finds Love. So come right back after the break. Welcome back to the, the history portion of the podcast, where we take some time to talk about a topic that we probably won't get too much in class, but is going to add some detail to history, and frankly, just to give us some fun. It's just kind of enjoyable to talk about some of these extra things that we won't talk much about in class, but this is an event that piggybacks right off of what we talked about, right? With the Protestant Reformation happening, and Martin Luther splitting from the Catholic Church and creating a wide divide where we have all these different types of Christianity. Now, today's topic, and when I teach this in class, I always make it a story day because it's just a crazy story. We're going to be talking about love, the sweet things in life, and a guy specifically named King Henry VIII of England um, and his struggles and his his turmoil as just a, a young, rich boy trying to find love in a hard world and also killing some of your wives. Long story short, we're going to get to King Henry VIII today. We're going to talk about what happens to him. Today's a story day. Um, as he looks around at what's happening and decides, who's going to love me? So let's jump right in. The Protestant Reformation happens during King Henry VIII's time. King Henry VIII's time. Um, once Luther breaks away from the Catholic Church, we have all these other groups that follow us, right? You have Lutherans, Baptists, Anabaptists, Calvinists, all these various versions of Christianity. And in England, King Henry VIII, being the smart lover boy that he is, decides that, well, he's going to use this opportunity to do something as well. And so some background real quick on King Henry VIII. Henry VIII is a tutor. T-U-D-O-R. That's the, that's the family he comes from. And his family is kind of filled with stress and struggle. Um, his father was Richard III. A lot of English history, if you're interested. I always have some people who really are. Um, who takes the throne during his lifetime, his father, uh, in a major war that we call the War of the Roses. 
And that's why Henry VIII and the Tudor dynasty, their symbol is a rose, a red and white rose on top of each other because it's a unification. It's um, the symbol of us winning the, 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 the war, the War of the Roses. And so his dad, named Henry, Henry VII, needs to cement a good relationship with a bunch of other countries. So he arranges for his son, Henry VIII, to get married. It's a political arrangement. Very common for um, new kings to try to form bonds with other countries, try to make alliances with other countries by marrying their kids. And so Henry VIII's first marriage, and I say that for a reason, his first marriage, is going to be arranged for him by daddy to a woman named Catherine of Aragon. She's Spanish. She's from the country of Spain. King Henry VIII is English, and they're going to get married to each other so that her parents, the king and queen of Spain, and Henry's parents, the king of England, can form an allegiance. But there's some problems. Typically, actually, arranged marriages tend to end better than marriages for love. A lot of research out there that shows that getting put into arranged marriages, actually, those marriages tend to last longer. But for King Henry VIII, he's a little bit unfortunate in this. He's married to Catherine of Aragon for 18 years. And in all that time, Catherine was only able to give him one child. Her name is going to be Mary, Mary Tudor. But here's the problem. King Henry VIII needs a boy. Because if he doesn't have a boy, then when he dies, the power of his dynasty, of his family, goes up in the, goes up in the air. No one knows who takes over. There's all kinds of complicated rules about it. It goes to this queen or that king or it goes to this, uh, this duchess or this prince, who knows, right? It goes to all these funny places. But if he has a son, then the dynasty passes down to his son and his son becomes the next king. But his wife, Catherine, for all kinds of various reasons, is unable to have children. And the one that she's able to have is a girl, Mary Tudor. There's also another problem happening in the royal courts <laughs> of Henry VIII. By this point, Henry is a young man. He's in his 30s. He's kind of in the prime of his life. He's a good-looking guy. He's a king. He's got money. He likes to play. Uh, he likes to ride horses and go hunting. He's a good-looking guy for the Middle Ages. And he begins to look, have a bit of a wandering eye outside of his marriage, specifically at a young noblewoman who takes care of his wife. There's a young girl. She's about 18, 17, 16, somewhere in there. And she's a handmaiden for his wife, Catherine of Aragon. Lots of queens had groups of women called handmaidens who would hang out and try to take care of them and stuff. And he starts to look at this young girl. Maybe not so... Uh, not so... Um, devoutly, I should say. What's a king gonna do? So here's what he does. Henry decides he's gonna kick his wife to the curb. This woman he's been married to for 18 years, she can't give me a good son. So he tells the Catholic Church, 
because at this point, all kings still have to answer to the Catholic Church. The Pope is the supreme ruler of the world, essentially. He tells the Catholic Church that Catherine has been sleeping around on him for 18 years. <laughs> and that Mary wasn't actually his. His daughter, by his wife, he starts to claim, she's not my real daughter, and my wife's been cheating on me for 18 years. And he says, I'm going to get this marriage annulled. It's a fancy word. If you don't know what it means, it means that I'm going to call the marriage off because we've never consummated the marriage. We've never gotten together like you do as husband and wife. And so we're not actually married. He asked the Pope if this can happen. Can we do this, Pope? She's, she's not my daughter. I want, to, I want to marry this sweet young thing. And the Pope tells Henry, nope, you have to stay married. Sorry, bud. Sorry, man. I'm the supreme ruler. Um, I got Martin Luther doing his thing over here, trying to split the church in half. I got all these problems with Galileo. You can't get divorced. I'm not dealing with that right now. But there's another problem brewing in the wings. In the meantime, oopsies, King Henry got Anne Boleyn pregnant. Oopsies, he got his side chick pregnant. So this is where it gets interesting. He's got a daughter. By this point, she's a young girl, probably eight, nine, something like that. He's got a wife he's been married to for 18 years. And he's got a side chick who's a young girl. Don't get it mixed. She's like 16. Who he's got pregnant. And so King Henry sees what's happening in the Lutheran world. He sees Protestantism happening all over Europe. And he says, well, what if we do this too? He decides, you know what? I believe, because I'm such a holy person, that we should get rid of the Catholic Church. We should, you know, focus on our faith. And he decides that he's going to leave the Catholic Church, and England as a country is going to become a version of Protestantism called Anglicanism. We are no longer a Catholic country. We are now a Protestant country. And the Pope... We don't have to listen to you. And I'm doing this as king because I'm such a good king to my people. But here's what he really does. As soon as he says he's Protestant and he doesn't have to listen to the Pope, boom, he gets a divorce. As soon as he gets rid of the Pope, he's getting a divorce. The Pope can't tell me what to do. I'm not Catholic anymore. And he marries his side chick. He marries Anne Boleyn. And she gives him a girl. Dang it. He was praying it was a boy. He needs a boy. But Anne Boleyn ends up giving him a girl. Elizabeth Tudor becomes her name. So now King Henry has two children by two different women, Catherine of Aragon and Anne Boleyn, one being Mary Tudor. Dang it, not a boy. One being Elizabeth Tudor. Dang it, not a boy again. Now, in the meantime, the people of England are struggling because since King Henry decided that the Catholic, that, the, that England was no longer going to be Catholic, he starts to make new laws saying that we're not Catholic. That means the people of my country are no longer allowed to be Catholic. If you're English, you cannot be Catholic anymore. But he says this, people say this, what if I want to stay a Catholic? What if I do like Catholicism? If you're English and they find that you like Catholicism, you're dead. Now, this is getting into the history a little bit, but later his daughter is going to take over once King Henry dies. We'll get to some of that detail in a minute, 
And she switches everything back to Catholicism. She says, nope, we're done being Protestant. Now we're Catholic again. And then the people that became Protestant under her father now have to be Catholic under his daughter. And if they stayed Protestant, boom, she kills them. And then his second daughter takes over, Elizabeth. This is down the road. And she switches everyone back to Protestantism again. And she says, if you became a Catholic under my sister, now I'm going to kill you. So the people of England are literally just like, I'll, I'll be whatever you want me to be. Today, I'll, today I'm Catholic, tomorrow I'm Protestant. I don't care. It doesn't matter. Just don't kill me. But that's coming down the road. Unfortunately for Anne, she's a young girl. She's 16, 17, 18. She's not ready for a full-time loving adult relationship like King Henry, who's now in his mid-30s or so. And so she, too, starts to have a bit of an, uh, a wandering eye. She's now the Queen of England, and she also has a lot of people coming and entertaining her and, and, and keeping her entertained because that's what the queens got to, kings as well. And she would have a poet come around. And he, he liked to write poetry. Obviously, guys, this is before there was radios and television. So poetry and, and comedians and plays, that's what people would do for entertainment. And she had a young poet, a young strapping man who's probably 16, 17, 18. He had light hair. He's a man of words. He would woo her with his fancy words, right? His name was Sir Thomas Wyatt. And uh, a lot of people, although it's never been proven... A lot of people think Sir Thomas Wyatt and Anne Boleyn were having an affair. And there's a very famous poem that people point to to say, ah, yeah, Sir Thomas Wyatt was writing about his love and his illegitimate affairs with Anne Boleyn. And I'm going to read his poem to you real quick. Um, the, 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 the poem, I believe, is called Whoso Lists to Hunt. But I'm going to read it to you. It's not going to be good. I am not a poet myself, but let me try to read it to you. This is his poem he wrote, we think, for Anne Boleyn. He said, Whoso Lists to Hunt. I know where is an hind, but as for me, alas, I may no more. The vain travel hath wearied me so sore. I am of them that farthest cometh behind. Yet may I by no means my wearied mind draw from the deer, but as she fleeth afore, fainting I follow. I leave off, therefore. Sithens in a net I seek to hold the wind. Who list her hunt, I put him out of doubt as well as I may spend his time in vain. Engraven with diamonds and letters plain, there is written her fair neck round about. Noli me tanger, for Caesar's I am, and wild for to hold, though I seem tame. Ooh. Right? Made all the ladies all excited, right? That poem, if you couldn't follow the Old English, it's technically kind of Middle English, it's a little hard to understand, He's pretty much talking about chasing a deer through the woods, hunting a deer who has its special chain around her neck that says, I'm Caesar's, I'm the king's, you can't have me, and he's chasing her anyway. Probably talking about Anne Boleyn and his secret love affair with her. So, King Henry hears about this, and guess what he does? He cuts her head off. <laughs> he cuts off Anne Boleyn's head. He literally has her put in the Tower of London, She's brought out before a group of noblemen and women. Keep in mind, she's like in her late teens. And he has her beheaded for her infidelities. And the story is she hid her little puppy in her coat. This is so sad. This is really a part that gets to me. She hid her little puppy in her dress. And when she died, the puppy came out of her dress and was whimpering. 
which terrible, right? So he has her head cut off for cheating on him. Not to mention he was doing that originally with Catherine of Aragon, his first wife. But you know what? King Henry hasn't given up. He's a man of love. He is right back on the trail. He's looking for another one as soon as Anne Boleyn is dead. And he falls in love with another one of Catherine's servants, another one of these young girls who was his wife's original servant. Her name's Jane Seymour. This is his third marriage. And two years after they get married, Henry finally has the son that he wants. Jane Seymour is now the queen. She has a child, and she finally gives, gives King Henry a boy, Edward Tudor. His name's Edward Tudor. And Henry is finally happy. He has the boy he's always wanted. Yeah, he has two daughters by two other women, but he doesn't really care about them. He's got a wife who was able to give him a son. Oh, it's perfect. Two weeks later, Jane dies. <laughs> two weeks after his son is born, and Henry's the happiest king that ever kinged, his wife dies. Jane Seymour is dead. And most historians look at King Henry's reign and say, we really think of all the women that he married and killed and married and divorced, we really think he loved Jane Seymour. We really think there was some genuine affection for her. But, I don't know, maybe you can call this karma. Jane Seymour dies two years later. Henry's distraught. He's very upset. He's lost love. What's he going to do? Now he has a son he has to raise on his own. He has two daughters that he's kind of sent away to other people to deal with. What's he going to do? He needs a woman around, right? And so he says, all right, I'm done with love. I'm just going to try to find somebody who I can be around, who I don't hate, who's also going to help me make another alliance. And so he sends out his advisors all over the country, all over the Western world, and says, find me a, find me a country that has a young daughter who'd be willing to marry me, and we'll make an alliance, and we'll become a friendly nation across, across an alliance. And his... his his advisors report back. They say, hey, 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 we found somebody. She's perfect. She's perfect for you. Her name's um, Anne of Cleves, and she's going to be an alliance. You're going to love her, dude. You're going to love her. She's great for you. And he says, all right, whatever. Get the marriage underway. Bring her in. We'll get married. He doesn't even look at her. He doesn't see what she looks like. He just takes his advisor's words and say, yeah, we'll get married, whatever. They get married. She comes walking down the aisle. She has her veil over her face. They stand before the new Anglican priest who's going to be getting their, their marriage put together. He lifts the veil, and Anne of Cleves was extremely, extremely ugly. <laughs> so, unfortunately for this poor woman, and I really do feel bad for her, unfortunately for this poor woman, her ugliness has come down in history as like epic ugliness. In fact, he, Henry goes through with the marriage. He's like, Ugh, and he marries her because <laughs> it's an alliance marriage. Behind her back, everybody in the court, including Henry himself, when they were having meetings, would talk about his wife as though she were, the nickname he gave her was the Flanders Mare, which, if you don't know much about horses, essentially means he called her Horseface. Everyone in his court called her horse face behind her back, the poor woman. I actually feel very bad for Anna Cleves. And so Henry, after a couple months, is like, I can't, I can't do this, guys. 
I can't stay married to the Flanders mare. And so he decides that he's going to do what he did with the original wife, Catherine. He's going he's gonna to divorce her. It's not going to behead her. She's a nice woman. She hasn't done anything wrong to him. He just doesn't like her that much. thinks she's ugly. And so he divorces her. And to Henry's credit, he's a terrible human being, but to his credit, he actually treats her pretty kindly for the rest of his life. They stay very close friends. He gives her a, a, a beautiful, beautiful mansion to live in. She has servants for the rest of her life. Uh, and, and they would have dinners together sometimes still. And they would talk and joke, but he just didn't love her. Right, but he treats her very nice for the rest of her life. But guess what? Henry's not done yet. By this point, he's getting older. By this point, he's probably in his fifties. By this point, if you look at pictures of King Henry, he's very fat. By this point, he had developed a disease called gout, where he couldn't walk a lot of times, and it makes your joints, especially in your knees, it makes your joints swell up real big. So he couldn't wear pants. His, his joints would swell so much he could only wear shorts. He would go to he would go to jousting tournaments and he'd put on knight's armor, but the legs wouldn't fit because his, his gout was too bad and he was so fat that uh, he would wear shorts <laughs> with his knight uniform on top. So he's not a pretty guy anymore. He's not as handsome as he once was. But he's not giving up on love, man. King Henry is uh, he wants to keep rocking, and so. He decides to marry again. And this time, he's going to marry one of Anne Boleyn's cousin, a young, pretty girl. Now she's probably 18, 19, 20. I don't know the actual years. You could look this up. But he marries the cousin of Anne Boleyn, the woman he had beheaded. He marries her cousin, the one that gave him Elizabeth, and then he cut her head off for having the affair. I know these names. You probably get them confused, and it's okay. He decides he's going to marry her cousin. Her name was Catherine Howard. And just like Anne Boleyn, her cousin, she unfortunately can't stay very faithful to a big, fat, gout-ridden, mean-spirited old king. And so unfortunately, she kind of goes behind his back with a couple of different people for a couple of years. And he also has her beheaded, just like her cousin, Anne Boleyn. He also has her put in the Tower of London. You can look it up. It's the place that they would keep uh, uh, political prisoners. And then just like Anne Boleyn, he had her brought out in front of all the noblemen and women and had her head cut off because she cheated on him, which is obviously extremely hypocritical. But Henry just can't give up on love. He just can't stop. Now, he's divorced his first wife, beheaded his second wife, his third wife died, his fourth wife he divorced, his fifth wife he beheaded, but he still thinks the right one's out there for him. By this point, he's very old. He's extremely fat. <laughs> his gout makes it some, so that he's unable to walk a lot of times. But he decides to marry once more, and he marries a woman named Catherine Parr. He's married three Catherines. It must be a thing. It must be a name that he's into. He marries another Catherine named Catherine Parr. And uh, fortunately for old Catherine, Henry dies about four years later. And uh, 
Catherine goes on to marry someone about a year later. She had no interest in staying married to this man. As soon as he dies, she's on to the next. Kind of fitting for his death. Now, some interesting stuff. We're going to kind of rapid fire the end here. By this point, King Henry is dead. But some interesting stuff. Once he dies, they try to put his son in charge, but his son dies pretty quick. Edward Tudor dies pretty quickly. And so all that's left are the two sisters, Mary Tudor and Elizabeth Tudor. Um, And they put Mary Tudor in charge first. She's the one that forces everybody back to Catholicism. And anybody who became Protestant, when her father was in charge, she starts killing. And this is the this is the Mary Tudor. This is the Queen Mary who's going to become Bloody Mary. If you've ever heard that story about, you know, you look in the mirror, say it three times, and she's supposed to appear. It's based off the real life Mary Tudor because she killed so many people for ter- uh, for leaving the Catholic Church. Very interesting history. You can dig into a lot of interesting stuff that happened to Mary Tudor. I feel very bad for her and what happened, but she was very bloodthirsty as well. I mean, her dad disowned her and said he wasn't her father, right? There's some terrible things that happened to her, but she also did kill a lot of people, hence the name Bloody Mary. And then his second daughter, Elizabeth Tudor, would go on to be one of the best rulers England has ever had. Queen Elizabeth I, she goes on to be in England, like the George Washington of, of, of English kings and queens. She's a queen, obviously, right? We look at George Washington as like, oh, what a major influence in American history or Abraham Lincoln. They look at Queen Elizabeth I like that. She goes on to be a very good ruler, despite her father's insanity. So to summarize this up, to finish this all up with King Henry VIII, tying it back to what we've learned, because Martin Luther decides to split the Christian church, leaves the Catholic church, forms Lutheranism, and thus Protestantism, King Henry VIII does the same thing, but he does it because he wants to marry, because he's such a loving guy, and he wants to, he wants to find love. So with that funny little story said, and if you want any more background, feel free to email me, feel free to ask me in class. We can talk a little bit more about King Henry because I love talking about this. I took a class in college all about King Henry and his kids. It was just a whole semester of this hundred years of history. Um, I have all kinds of information and books I could recommend for you if you like this stuff. But with that said, we're going to wrap up today's this week's podcast on the Protestant Reformation during this time period, the Renaissance. And with this said, we're going to also be wrapping up this unit on the Renaissance and start transitioning in the next couple class periods to our second unit, which is going to be about the global age of exploration. I'm going to go back down to South America and talk about the Aztecas and the Incas and Native Americans and, and what's happening in India and start getting out to what's happening in Asia and Africa, right? So we're going to start leaving Europe behind a little bit. Um, So with that said, can't wait to see you guys in class. Thank you for listening.